jewelry was the desired achievement of the ancient world, particularly the classical world. Glory is simply fame, it's accolade, it's recognition, it's exaltation. I suppose that there's a desire for glory today as well. Anybody who posts on social media and has the least least care about how many likes or shares or nice comments that they get is a glory seeker. In the ancient world, it was uh, common sense that gaining glory came at the expense of other people. The fact that we think today of humility as a virtue is the influence of the Christian faith upon the world. Uh, In the Greco-Roman classical world, humility was not a virtue. In fact, it was often listed among the vices. It was a despicable state to overcome. Paul's admonition to the Colossians to clothe yourselves in humility, which sounds so right to our ears, so inoffensive, would have sounded something like slather yourselves in fresh animal manure to the classical world. The Son of God came into the world to gain glory. But it was not at our expense. It was instead for us and for our salvation. And because it was, we discover that the road to glory is an unexpected path. I want to read to you today from uh, John's Gospel Chapter 12, verses 23 through 26. Jesus said, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces much fruit. The one who loves his life will lose it. Well, the one who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Mm -hmm. Whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, my servant will also be. My father will honor the one who follows me. And our God, as we consider these words of Jesus... Lord, help us to seek honor and glory, not the honor and glory of the world that comes from the world, the honor and glory that comes from God and comes to us by walking in Jesus' steps. And Father, in that we pray that you'd help us to glorify you. Amen. The hour has come, Jesus said, for the Son of Man to be glorified. That phrase, the Son of Man, is a messianic title. When people heard Jesus say that, what did they think he meant by that? He uh, often said it, if he was speaking about himself, was speaking in the third person. Who was he referring to? Well, no matter 
The coming of glory would certainly involve swords, right? Would certainly involve the shedding of blood, right? What would the crowds think when Jesus said that? The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. What would the crowds think? What would his disciples think? What do you think? The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, and yet he tells us that that glory would come by an inglorious path. That commonly held belief, by the way, was correct. Establishing the kingdom would require bloodshed, but not in the way they had thought. Because Jesus came not to kill to establish a kingdom, but to die to establish a kingdom. And as Jesus talks about it, his language is cryptic, almost incomprehensible. In verse 31, he says, Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. But I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. The crowd spoke up. We've heard from the law that the Christ will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? He speaks about judgment coming into the world, condemnation coming into the world, and the ruler of the world being cast out. Did he mean Caesar? Did he mean the kingdom was finally going to come and that the Romans would be driven out of Israel and out of Jerusalem? Then he speaks of being lifted up. And that word, that phrase, you know, has a, has a double meaning. To be lifted up can mean to be exalted, can, be, uh, can mean to be elevated, can mean to be made famous, to be fated, to be glorified, we might say. Or it's the word that can be used of one lifted up on a gallows or on a cross. John tells us that Jesus, when he said that, said it to indicate the kind of death he would die. Seems that John did not conclude that after the fact. You know, there's some things in John's gospel that were told that Jesus had said or done certain things, and it was only after he had risen that they realized what he was talking about. But this doesn't seem to be in that category. Jesus must have elaborated on it in some way that John doesn't report because the crowds get it. They get what he's saying, but they don't get it. And they say, but we've heard from the law that as we've been taught that the Christ will remain forever. They'd gone to the synagogue. They'd gone to the temple. They knew the chief priests and the teachers of the law who had a very well-formed-out eschatology, and they knew what it was supposed to be like when the Christ came. They had it all figured out. It was right there in their Bibles. It's a 
perennial warning to us to hold our theological constructs loosely. Otherwise, we may find ourselves like the teachers of the law unintentionally conveying misinformation. But they, like all of us, were products of their times. And they would have understood Jesus, I think, no better if he had spoken plainly. Because glory for them meant conquest. It meant exaltation, and that at the expense of enemies and opponents. It would have sounded no less like gibberish to them if Jesus had said plainly, I will be glorified by going to the cross. The cross. The very image of it was a horror. The Roman scholar and statesman Cicero wrote in 100 BC, let the very word cross be removed not only from the bodies of Roman citizens, but from their thoughts, their ears, their eyes. The mere mention of it is unworthy of a Roman citizen and a free man. You know, the oldest artistic depiction that we have of the crucifixion is actually a piece of graffiti that was scribbled uh, into a wall on Rome's Palatine Hill. And there's a picture of a man on the cross with a head of a donkey and somebody standing under the cross with his arms raised in adoration. And the words crudely scrawled under it, Alexamenos worships his God. We have no idea who Alexamenos was, but the point of this bit of graffiti that's gotten uh, preserved providentially through history, the point of it's clear. The man on the cross is an ass, and anyone who worships him is a fool. The cross was a horror, despised and despicable, as was anyone who was impaled upon it. And yet Jesus took that inglorious path to be glorified. Not for himself, he didn't need to leave heaven for that, but for us and for our salvation. He was lifted up, not in a worldly praised glory, but in shame. And yet, being lifted up, he's drawn all people to himself. With his blood, he has purchased men and women, boys and girls from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and they have come. His church exists throughout the earth. In the book of Revelation, John is given a vision of Jesus in all of his glory, and his face is shining like the sun in its brilliance. 
And it's that glory that we, his people, are to participate in. Paul says it like this in Romans 8, I consider the present suffering not worthy to compare with the glory that will be revealed in us. He doesn't say revealed to us, but revealed in us. He says in chapter 9 that God has prepared us as vessels for glory. We are, he tells the church at Corinth, to be raised in glory. And Christ in us is our hope of glory, he writes to the church at Colossae. In Christ, God has destined his people for glory, for fame, for accolade, for exaltation. But as for Christ, so also for us. Our glory will come by an inglorious path. And so Jesus says the hours come for him to be glorified. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces much fruit. And then he says the one who loves his life will lose it. Well, the one who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, my servant will also be. And my father will honor the one who serves me. The other gospel writers report Jesus saying, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him take up his cross and deny himself. And follow me. And whoever does not bear his cross cannot be my disciple. Make no mistake about that. There's no crown without a cross. The New Testament tells us over and over again that we participate in the glory of Christ only to the degree that we'll participate in his suffering. And we deceive ourselves when we think to bypass the cross and gain, grab the glory. And we see that deception throughout history. We see the deception in the rise of papal political power at the collapse of the Roman Empire. We see that deception in movements like the British Israelite movement and uh, its offspring, the Christian identity movement. We see that deception in the Deutsch Christians movement in Germany in the 1930s and 40s in which as the Reichsbishop of the movement said pointed by the Nazis as he was that Christianity and Jesus are portrayed as having he said a hard warrior like face that destroys everyone and everything that is weak and unworthy so that what is really life may endure. We see that deception in our own notions that Jerusalem could be builded here in the words of William Blake. And all of these seek an earthly glory that's gained at the expense of others. 
Jesus gained glory by an inglorious path, not at our expense, but for us and for our salvation. And in his suffering, Peter tells us that he has left us a pattern that we should follow in his steps. So we confess today in the Nicene Creed that for us and for our salvation, he came down. If he had sought glory as the world knows it, he would never have come down. But he came down. And for insult, he returned love. For hatred, he returned healing. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And his glory came by an inglorious path. And in him, we're called to glory, but make no mistake about it and what that means. Our glory will only come through an inglorious path. God calls us in our relationships to the world and to those around us not to be masters, but to be slaves. Not to have dominion, but to don a towel and to become the servant of all. His glory came in that for us and for our salvation, he came down. And our glory will come only when for others and for their salvation we come down. In his sermon, The Weight of Glory, C.S. Lewis said, it is possible for each to think too much of his own potential glory hereafter. It is hardly possible for him to think too often or too deeply about that of his neighbor. The load or weight or burden of my neighbor's glory should be daily laid on my back, a load so heavy that only humility can carry it and the backs of the proud will be broken. There are no ordinary people. You have never met a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortal souls whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, exploit immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. And all day long we are, in some degree, helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. For us and for our salvation, he came down. He was glorified that we may share in his glory. And the pathways are the same. His glory came by an inglorious path. Our glory, if it comes to any of us, will come by an inglorious path, for no servant is above his master. There are only two destinies for any of us it's the destiny of glory or the destiny of shame. Or to quote Lewis again. In the end, that face, which is the delight or terror of the universe, must be turned upon each of us, either with one expression or the other, either conferring joy inexpressible or inflicting shame that can never be cured or disguised. 
for us and for our salvation. He came down. And for us, there is only one path to glory. And it is the same.